A couple of weeks ago, I had a very, very bad day out in the wood shop. As some of you are aware, I make Windsor chairs in my spare time. It's something of a, a serious hobby. As I like to remind my wife, it's cheaper than therapy. Sometimes I need woodworking and therapy, but sometimes I just need woodworking. But uh, I was, uh, there's, a, there's kind of a magical moment when you're making a chair when you glue the four legs of the chair up into the seat. And once you glue the legs there, the joint is so strong, it's so foolproof that you are never going to get those legs out of the seat intact, okay? So it's a tapered tenon. So the tenon goes up, it's tapered, and you glue it, and then you put a wedge in it. And so it's there. The, the joint is stronger than the individual woods themselves. So a couple weeks ago, I was working on a chair. I, I glued the legs up in it, and something didn't seem quite right. It, the legs were a little too hard to get up in there. And uh, so I left it. I came back about an hour later, and I started studying the chair, and it became obvious what I had done. We've got an action shot here. James put that up, and you can't really tell. But what I had done is the, the legs that were supposed to be in the front or in the back, and so I glued up the undercarriage wrong. And on a Windsor chair, the front of the chair is supposed to be about an inch taller than the back of the chair, but on this chair, the, the front of the chair was about an inch lower than that. And so that's a, a fatal mistake. Did I mention that once you glue this up, you are not getting the legs out? And so when I realized what I had done, my heart sank because that represents about 25 hours of work, okay? And uh, I doubt any of you tend to catastrophize in situations like this, but I do. And so I started calling myself all sorts of unflattering names. And I thought about a sledgehammer. I thought about buzzing it through a table saw and burying the evidence and all sorts of things. Fortunately, my 23-year-old son was, was there when I realized what I had done. And he said, Dad, you should go work out and you should come back and deal with this later. And so that's what I did. Actually, I screamed, and then I went and worked out, <coughs> and I, I came back. I wonder if you can think of a time when you have been in the state of mind that I was in just then, when you realize that you'd made a mistake or you had wasted a lot of time, a lot of energy, and you looked at it, and it was like hopeless. You just made a mess of things. And so for you, it couldn't be something... Uh, somewhat trivial like a chair or a home improvement project or a recipe, uh, but it may be something more significant. You might be thinking of a relationship and you're thinking, I've invested so much time, I've invested so much energy in this relationship, and yet it's absolutely a mess. I've just made a disaster of it. And you look to the future and you can't see any hope whatsoever. Or maybe you think about your, basically your entire life and you say, you know, I think back on my life and I've made a series of decisions and they've all turned out bad and I feel like I've wasted most or all of my life. And so you might come in here this morning and you may be having this regret. You may be full of grief. You may be full of even shame or self-condemnation. Be encouraged by the fact that on the very first Easter morning, when the original disciples of Jesus came to the tomb, they were filled with regret. Peter was full of shame. He was full of guilt. He's the one that denied Jesus three times. He said, Jesus, I will follow you to the death. 
and then he denied Jesus three times. The rest of the disciples, I had to be wondering, have we believed a lie? They followed Jesus for three years, and it looked like when he, he was crucified and put in the grave, it looked like everything was lost. He sure didn't look like he was establishing a kingdom, okay? What kind of kingdom has a crucified king? And so they had to be full of, full of regrets. And one of the things that makes the gospel so compelling is that they're so honest and so true to life. And so the Bible is not propaganda literature. They're not trying to make the original disciples of Jesus look better than he actually was. They're not, they're not whitewashing them and say, these are these perfect people. No, their doubt, their guilt, their unbelief is, is very evident. And we, we're going to see it in the passage we're going to consider today. But what we're going to find is that their relief and their hope came from realizing that Jesus was actually raised from the dead. And in the midst of your grief, in the midst of your sorrow and disappointment, in the midst of your shame, your relief is going to come, your salvation is going to come from realizing that Jesus is no longer dead, he is raised from the dead never to die again. And so you're not going to leave here today with, with a nice, neat solution to your problems wrapped in a bow and handed to you in a package. Now, your, your healing, your relief is going to come in the context of a relationship with the risen Lord. I can't predict how he will address it, but if you're in a relationship with the risen Christ, he will bring the resources of heaven to bear in your life. So we're going to look at John 20, verses 1 through 18. So we'll move pretty quickly through this passage. The first, we're going to see the experience of Peter and John. And John is the, the writer of this gospel. And before he, he talks about himself and Peter, he mentions Mary Magdalene. We don't know as much as we would like to know about her. She's mentioned in all four of the, the resurrection accounts. The only other place she's mentioned is in Luke 8. And that's where we learn that Jesus had cast out from her seven demons. And so she was a woman who was tormented by these evil spirits. And out of, out of affection for Jesus, she had this fierce loyalty to him because he had shown compassion to her. And we read this in, <clears throat> in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. And so this was on Sunday. It was the first of the Sabbath was the, the last day of the week. It was on Sunday morning. They came to the tomb, and we have this detail that she came while it was still dark. And based on that detail, that's why Christians and churches down through the centuries have had what? Sunrise services, right? Our Easter gift to you is not having a sunrise service, Okay. <laughs> It's a great idea, but you don't have to do that. When Mary got to the tomb, uh, well, actually, Luke mentions that Mary came to the tomb because she was bringing spices for the body. She was not expecting a resurrected Christ. She was expecting him to be dead. She was looking for a lifeless body. Joseph and uh, Nicodemus had already put a, a hundred pounds of spices on the body. Mary was bringing additional ones. What she found was the stone had been taken away from the tomb, and she assumed foul play. Verse 2, she ran, so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Did you notice the description there? 
Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Several times in the Gospel of John, that's the way John referred to himself. He said he, he referred to himself in the third person, like Bob Dole used to refer to himself in the third person. John does this. He says he's the other disciple. He is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Isn't that amazing? So he wouldn't say, I'm, I'm the most special or I'm Jesus' favorite. But the defining characteristic of his relationship with Jesus was this love, this affection that Jesus showed for him. Can you imagine signing your letters that way? The disciple whom Jesus loved, Steve. <laughs> right? It, it's possible that Jesus does have this love, this affection for us. Well, Mary's comment confirms that she didn't believe Jesus had been raised from the dead. Uh, she said they'd taken him away. Her, she probably thought that grave robbers had taken his body. Verse 3, so Peter and the other disciple, that's John writing, they went forth and they were going to the tomb. And this is kind of humorous. The two were running together, okay? So they're running side by side. And the other disciple, he's talking about himself, the other disciple ran faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. <laughs> you know, Peter's going, I'm better at volleyball. You're faster than me, but uh, you had to write that in the account. <clears throat> and so, verse 5, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Verse 6, it's so true to what we know about Peter. And so Simon Peter also came following him. Did he stop at the entrance? Did he stoop and look in? Look in? No, he entered the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying on the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Uh, that's not what grave robbers would do. They wouldn't have taken the, the, the wrapping over the head and folded it up and put it by itself. If somebody robs your home, they're not going to fold the laundry on the way out the door. And so the, this was striking. And so verse, verse 8, so the other disciple, that's John talking about himself again, who had come, first come to the tomb, then also entered and he saw and believed. And that's a theme in John. They saw and believed. When he saw the grave clothes and no body, and he saw the head cloth that was wrapped up and set in a separate place, he believed that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And so it clicked. If you were with us last week, we saw over and over, Jesus told him plainly, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to be, I'm going to be buried, and I'm going to raise on the third day. But they didn't understand that. Now, John understood it. He understood that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And so it, it, what Jesus had said finally made sense. We aren't really told whether or not Peter believed at this time, but John believed. And significantly, we read in verse 9, he believed even though his understanding of Scripture was incomplete. For as yet, they did not understand the Scripture. He's talking about the Hebrew Bible, the old, what we call the Old Testament. He did not understand the Scripture, <clears throat> that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. And so the significant thing here is that even though they didn't understand all of the scriptures, he still believed in the resurrection. That was the foundational thing. Jesus had raised from the dead, and the resurrection confirmed that everything Jesus said and did was true, including the fact that he had given his life as a ransom for many. It was a big deal for them to eventually understand the scriptures because Jesus said over and over, I'm 
coming to fulfill everything that the old covenant uh, 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 foreshadowed. The whole sacrificial system, all the prophecies, the gospel is that Jesus was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And so that was significant. But it's, it's important to notice that while, while John still had significant gaps in his theology, he believed. That was the foundation for the rest of his life. The resurrection vindicated everything that Jesus said and did. I recently read a story about a man named Mark Clark, and I hope your parents didn't give you a rhyming name, but his name was Mark Clark, and his dad was very antagonistic to Christianity, so much so that when the firstborn was born, was, uh, first son was born, he wanted to name him Matthew, but he didn't want it spelled like the Matthew in the Bible, so he spelled it with one T, M-A-T-H-E-W. And then ironically, he named him Matthew, and the second one was named Mark, and he didn't see the irony in that. But Mark says that, that he grew up just in this home where, where uh, there was this antagonism toward Christ, but when he was nine years old, he started going to a summer camp, a Christian camp, where he would hear about Jesus. And he says that he was fascinated there by the idea of God, not enough to read the Bible, not enough to go to church, but he was fascinated by it for one week at a time, and then he'd come home to his normal life. And in his normal life, when he was eight or nine years old, he started using drugs, and uh, he, he started stealing in order to pay for drugs. So he stole from cars, he stole from stores, he stole from the purses of his friends' moms, and he, he just started this life of drug abuse. When he was in ninth grade, he overdosed and almost died. As well, he, he uh, developed a, a severe case of obsessive compulsive disorder with all sorts of behaviors that were destructive personally and socially. And so you get the picture. He had this chaotic, confusing childhood. His dad died when he was 15 years old, and he said that 18 people attended the, future, the funeral. He says he stood over his, his dad's casket. All these thoughts flooded his mind, like, where is my dad now? Or even, what is my dad now? He had all these questions about, what do I believe about God? What do I believe about science? What do I believe about heaven and hell? Do I even believe in eternity? Do I even believe there's a morality? Two years later, when he was 17 years old, he met a guy named Chris, who was a former drug dealer who had become a follower of Christ. And since he was on the road to becoming a drug dealer himself, he was intrigued at this guy whose life had been transformed by a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he says that Chris, quote, challenged me to examine my doubts. He learned to doubt his doubts. Instead of seeing his doubts as absolute, he learned to challenge his doubts, to read the Bible, to pray, and to think about the implications of what I believed about life and God. He says that in that crucible, I knew I would either lose the small amount of faith I had possessed since my days at summer camp, or it would explode and change me. And basically that year, Clark put his faith in Jesus Christ, and he started on this journey of seeking God and seeking answers to all these questions that he had. And the relevant thing about his story in light of the passage we've led today, read today is that he believed before he had all his questions answered. He started seeking God in community, 
and progressively his questions were answered. He read the Bible and studied the Bible with others. He wrestled with issues like the reliability of the Bible. He wrestled with the dark history of the church, with all the judgmentalism and the hypocrisy and the violence. He wrestled with this question of how can a loving, sovereign God allow so much evil and so much suffering in the world? And so his healing from all the trauma of his childhood began when he entered into a relationship with Christ. At first, all he knew, all he understood is that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and he was raised on the third day never to die again. And I would say to you that that your healing, if you're not yet a believer in Christ, your healing will begin with this simple understanding. You don't necessarily have to have all your questions answered before you come to faith in Christ. And it can vary for different ones of us. You may need to have some of your questions answered. Or for you, it may be enough just to know that there are Christians who have thought deeply about the questions that you've answered and that some people have satisfying answers to those, those questions. But, uh, and you don't need to understand how Jesus is going to deal with all your brokenness, how he's going to uh, address all the, the doubts and all the regrets that you have. But since he was raised from the dead, seriously, if Jesus was literally raised bodily from the dead, you can be assured that he will address those issues in his time and in his own way. And so if you're convinced that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and was raised on the third day, you can trust him. You can begin walking with him in community with other people. And in the context of that relationship with Jesus, he will address your brokenness. Well, let's consider the experience of Mary Magdalene. Back to John 20. After she ran from the tomb and she informed Peter and John that that the the stone had been rolled away, she made her way back to the tomb, verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stopped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. In the Bible, uh, angels are messengers from God, and sometimes they take human forms, sometimes they have a type of radiance where it's obvious these are heavenly beings. And uh, the appearance of these angels suggests that God had been responsible for the body being gone. And one of the, and, and the, the angels ask a question in verse 13, it's probably meant to be a challenge. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? The implication is, is it really appropriate for you to be weeping at this moment in light of what has happened? And she said to them, pretty obvious to her, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And there are several really, really strong reasons why she might not have understood it was Jesus. Number one, she came while it was still dark. Number two, she was weeping, so she was looking through tears. And number three, whoever that was, it couldn't have been Jesus because he was dead. She saw him crucified. She knew he'd been put into the tomb. 
Well, Jesus asked her the, the same question the angels asked, again, implying she really shouldn't have been weeping at that moment on that morning. Jesus said to her, verse 15, woman, why are you weeping? And then he asked another question, whom are you seeking? You know, Jesus asked questions to draw out what people really desired, to draw out what they really believed. And so she isn't, he isn't merely asking for the name, but he's, he's really asking what type, in the context of John, what type of Messiah are you looking for? Are you looking for Jesus of Nazareth, whose career ended at the cross? Who are you looking for his lifeless body? Or are you looking for Jesus, who taught with authority, who performed miracles, who died on the cross as a payment for your sin, and then was raised on the third day, never to die again. Is that who you're looking for? And Mary didn't have a category for that. She, she couldn't answer that, that question. She didn't know that the risen Christ was even an option. And there's a sense in which Jesus is asking each of us here today the same question. Whom are you seeking? When you came here this morning, whom are you seeking? Or what are you seeking? And you may not really know the answer to that question. You, you may be thinking, I just came to church. Get, get out of my face. I don't, I'm not really seeking anything. And you may not know that it's an option, that you could be seeking the risen Christ. He's very willing. He is more than willing. If you want to find him, he will let you find him. It's interesting, in the Gospel of John, uh, a lot of times people didn't simply bring their requests to Jesus. They brought him solutions, okay? And I, as I've told you before, I majored in architecture for six weeks one time. And the, the only thing I remember from that whole time, I slept through most of it, but I remember a professor saying, uh, people don't bring you problems, they bring you solutions. Here, build me this. And that's what people did to Jesus. Jesus Show me where they've hid the body, the man who was blind or who, was, who couldn't walk. said, do you want to be made well? He said, how could I? I can't get in the water before everybody else. And so they brought solutions. But there's another option. You could be seeking the risen Lord. Well, Mary couldn't see beyond her own grief. And uh, apparently Jesus was buried in a garden. And so her only thought, the only person would be here this time of, of the morning would be the gardener. So she thought he was a gardener. She asked where the body was so she could give him a proper burial. And in response, Jesus speaks a single word. Jesus said to her, Mary. He knew her name. In John 10, we know that Jesus is the good shepherd. He says the, the, she, the shepherd knows the sheep by name and they know his voice and they will not follow another. Mary heard the voice of the good shepherd and she knew nobody else could say Mary the way Jesus said Mary. And so uh, she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which is a longer form of rabbi, which means teacher. When Mary heard Jesus speak her name, she knew that he was the good shepherd risen from the dead, risen to conquer death on her behalf. 
And, and apparently she put him in this, this grip. Jesus said to her, stop clinging for, to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. This reminds me of my mother when I'm, I'm about to leave from visiting her in, in Mississippi. It's like, I may never see you again, so I'm going to hang on as long as I, I possibly can. He says, I've got things to do. Go announce to the others what has happened. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Read the rest of the chapter this afternoon if you get a chance because Jesus, he gave them visible evidence that he had indeed risen from the dead. Thomas was not there when he initially appeared to the disciples and Thomas said, I won't believe unless I see and touch the risen Christ. Eight days later, Jesus stood in their midst, and Thomas also believed. And Jesus said this to him. Jesus said to Thomas, because you have seen me, have you believed? The answer to that is yes. Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. And so it was appropriate for the original disciples to have visible evidence that he had raised from the dead. But all the rest of us, everybody here in the room, we have not believed because we've seen. We have believed, if you believed, because of the firsthand account of those who did see Jesus, who did see the risen Lord. Well, I know you're really wondering about the chair I mentioned at the first of the service. And so I want to tell you what happened to that chair because it's, it's sort of a parable of uh, what we're talking about today. So about a day later, I came back to that chair and uh, we've got some action shots here. This is what I did. I turned it over and I cut off the legs. Uh, that joint was never going to come apart. So I sawed them off. The legs there, I threw that away. Uh, it, it, was, it was done. And next, what I did was I drilled out the holes for new legs. And then I tapered the holes. This is a reamer. You turn the taper and you make a, uh, the reamer and you make a tapered hole. And I turned new legs and put the undercarriage together and I glued it back together correctly this time. Ooh, ah, right? And uh, you look at this chair and you say, that chair never had any problems. That, that chair was just built the way it should have been from the start. But if you look more closely, you see the scars. You see that I, I drilled out the original, original legs. And that's what's true of our lives as well. Uh, some of you are woodworkers, and they say a good woodworker is one who knows how to fix his mistakes. And a good shepherd is one who knows how to lead rebellious, helpless sheep to clean water and abundance of food. A good shepherd is one who knows how to protect defenseless sheep. And that's what Jesus does. He really does. When I first did this, made this mistake, I, I felt shame, regret. But now I take more satisfaction in this chair than a chair I, I made without making that mistake. And there's a sense in your life when, when people look at you from a distance, we all look pretty good from a distance, right? If I didn't know any of your stories, I would think, I mean, you look amazing. I would think all of you, you have no problems. You have these charmed lives that you're living. But if I get closer to you, if you get closer to me, you see the scars. Jesus had scars. 
Peter had scars. He had betrayed Jesus. That was shameful. That was, he, he had self-condemnation. But after the resurrection, Jesus redeemed that. And now we, we know about Peter, and we don't condemn him. We take courage from that because we're like Peter. We deny Jesus at different times. And so the things that, the regrets that you have, again, I can't predict how Jesus will address those. I can't predict how he will heal your brokenness, but he's a good shepherd and he will, and he knows how to heal you. And when he does, instead of seeing shame, instead of seeing condemnation, you will see redemption. Jesus offers you something that nobody else does. Come to him and find life. He rose from the dead to give you new life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you now. We thank you that Jesus is raised from the dead. And I would say to you here today, if you have never explicitly trusted in Jesus, put your faith in Jesus, I would invite you to just pray silently as I pray. It's not a magic prayer, but it's just a way to express your faith. So if you believe Jesus died on your behalf and rose again, pray something like this. Jesus, I admit that I have sinned. I admit that I have wandered far from you. God, I've made a mess of my life, and I cannot fix it. I thank you that you died for my sins. I thank you that you rose on the third day, never to die again. I believe that you will give me life. You will give me life eternal. And so I put my faith in you. I want that life. I want to walk with you throughout this life and into eternity. And so if you prayed that prayer this morning, I would encourage you to tell somebody, tell a, a follower of Christ that you really trust or tell me, I would love to know that you've entered into this relationship. And God, for all of us, we pray that we would not live our lives as if Jesus is still in the grave. We pray, God, that we would live our lives in fellowship with our risen Savior, in fellowship with one another. We pray, God, that we'll see the provision and the nourishment you provide for us. We pray that we would delight in, in the things you do. And it's all for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.